0: Acts chapter 10, verse number 8. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his house. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Now, I want you to look at verse uh, uh, number 2 again. This is where we're going to land today. He was devout, God-fearing man. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God three weeks ago I started this series on finding a godly man in an ungodly world and uh, w- during these three weeks we have learned according to secular statistics that our nation is in a morally bankrupt condition our nation financially is is nose diving down and also, As far as the aptitude of our, especially children in our inner cities, they they are, are struggling to keep up with the rest of the world. And the statistics tell us that one of the main contributing factors to this downward spiral is a lack of male godliness and influence in the home. Fatherlessness in the home. In fact, I've read this, I quoted this to you, more than 20 million children live in a home without the physical presence of a father. Millions more have dads who are physically present but emotionally absent. If it were a disease, fatherlessness would be epidemic an epidemic worthy of attention as a national emergency. And I didn't say that. This has been quoted by the president of the National Center for fathering. I also shared with you, and we'll put them on the screen for you to read, a list of statistics that anybody can look up on online, a list of statistics that are proving that our young people are losing their way because of the lack of godly fathers in the home. And what we're discovering is that fatherless America is leading to poverty in families, Increased crime in our communities, a nation of youth who achieve less academically, and neighborhoods of kids who are carrying emotional baggage. And the secular statistics let us know that it's because of the lack of godly male influence. And this has been happening now for two decades. For 20 years, the statistics are pointing downward. So, for 20 years, two decades, we've known this has happened. And the politicians talk about it, preachers preach about it. And we, as the people of our cities and our churches, we want to blame the politicians, we want to blame the government, we want to blame the media, we want to blame the entertainment industry. And what blaming other people does, blaming an impersonal entity, makes us feel better about ourselves because we don't have to take the personal responsibility. But it doesn't change our families, and it doesn't change our neighborhoods or our communities. So it's time that we stop blaming other people, and men, it's time we look inward. It's time we look at ourselves and stop blaming Congress and stop blaming the president and stop blaming all the politicians and stop blaming the schools and stop blaming Hollywood and stop blaming the media. And we need to look inward. And we need to ask ourselves as men some very hard questions. And here's the questions we need to ask Am I a godly man? Am I the type of man that I want my daughter to marry? Am I the type of man I want my daughter to marry? Am I the type of man that I want my son to become? Am I a man that God is pleased with? Am I a godly man? And then we started asking, so what does a godly man look like? If I need to be a godly man, then what does a godly man look like? And you sure, we've learned you sure can't look to culture to determine what a man's supposed to look like. Because every 10 years, every decade, the identity of a man is changing according to culture. So what does a godly man, what does the Bible say a godly man should look like? And then we read this about Cornelius. And Cornelius, the Bible says, that he is devout, he is God-fearing, he is generous, and then he's prayerful. Those are the four things that the Bible says about Cornelius. He's devout, he's God-fearing, he's generous, and he's prayerful. You say, why is that important? Well, it was important enough for God to... He got God's attention, and God showed up to minister to him. Okay? And here's what's important about that. He wasn't even a Christian. He didn't even know Jesus as Lord and Savior. He was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He didn't know anything about Jehovah God. He didn't know the Roman road to salvation. He had never asked asked Jesus to come into his heart. But he had a hunger after God and he was seeking God. And because he was devout, God-fearing, generous, and he prayed all the time, God sent an angel to his house. And it changed his life forever. Cornelius was a godly man. He was a godly man. He had some characteristics of godliness, and he didn't even know how to do it biblically, but he had some things that got God's attention. So, what was he? He was devout. We talked about that. Let me review just a second. Devout means he was reverent, he was reverent in his attitude, and he was reverent in his activity. To be devout, reverent, meant Cornelius had boundaries. He had boundaries in his personal life, he had boundaries in his home, and he had boundaries publicly. He had boundaries in his thought life. Men, if we're going to be godly men, you've got to have boundaries in your thought life. You and I can dress up and look good on Sunday, but what are you thinking about on Monday night? We can sing the right songs when the worship team sings, but what are we thinking about in our private time? What are we allowing our mind to dwell upon and to fantasize about? Cornelius was a devout man. Devout means he was reverent. He was reverent in his thought life. He had boundaries in his life. Boundaries in our life protect us from things that have the potential of robbing our blessings and our future. Let me repeat that. Boundaries in our life protect us from things that have the potential of robbing our blessings and our future. Men, every one of us need boundaries. Listen, you can't play any sports activity, you can't play any game without staying within the boundaries. If you stay, move out of the boundaries, you are disqualified for that play or for that game. Likewise, in our personal life, we need boundaries. Boundaries don't prohibit us. They don't restrict us. Boundaries protect us. And in our personal life, We need boundaries. We need boundaries in our thoughts. We need boundaries for our words. We need boundaries for our activities. Men, do you have a clear boundary in your life? Do you have some boundaries? Do we have boundaries concerning our thoughts and our words and our activities? Do we have boundaries on what we allow to influence us? Do we have boundaries on what we view in the media? Here's one. Do we have safeguard and boundaries and accountability measures on our social media practices? Is anybody here? Let me ask you something. Men, does your wife have access to your phone and your passwords? Does your wife have access to your phones or your passwords? No, she don't. It's my phone. Wrong. It's her phone, too, if she's your wife. Remember, boundaries are to protect you. You play football this afternoon. You go play football, and there will be boundaries. You've you got to stay within the boundaries to finish the play. We've got to stay within proper boundaries to finish our race well in life. Do you have, does your wife know your passwords to your computer? Does your wife have access to your phone? Here's one single, guys, for the single guys out there. Here's one. Can you hand your phone to a Christian brother and have them scroll through the pics and browsing history without feeling embarrassed by what they see? We're talking about boundaries. We're talking about men being godly men. Men who are devout, who are reverent, who have boundaries in their life. There's not a week that goes by I'm telling you the truth. Hardly a week goes by that I do not receive call from a couple who I work with who have broken this. The marriage vows have been betrayed. The covenant has been broken. And it all started by an untempered social media contact contacting somebody through Instagram, Facebook. Some social media situation, they contacted somebody from their past or they contacted somebody, some friend online. And it all started very innocently, but it turned into something more than that. And I literally have couples in my office on a continual basis whose marriage is now at the point of a divorce because of unbalanced social media practices. Anybody listening to what I'm saying? Men, does your wife have access to your phone? Does she know your passwords? Can she ask for your phone at any time and say, let me see it without your hair standing on the back of your neck? My phone and my wife's phone are charged side by side. And I've made up my mind years ago, Amanda, to protect me. Not to rob me, but to protect me. Amanda, you can look at my phone anytime you want to. Okay? We're talking about being a godly man. He was devout. And being devout means he had had boundaries. The second thing he was, he was God-fearing. The word God-fearing there, as I've taught you, doesn't mean to be scared of God. To fear God means to respect and reverence God. To give God the glory, the honor, the reverence, the praise, and preeminence which He deserves. Go back to Acts chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. In Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was devout, but he was also a God-fearing man. He is a God-fearing man. And I shared with you several things, but let me repeat three of them that's so important. Why you and I, need men, need to be God-fearing. That we need to have, give God preeminence. That we have a respect for God. Okay. Now, first of all, remember, we didn't read it there, but we read it at the beginning. The Bible says that he feared God and everybody in his house feared God. You know what I've discovered about a fear of God? When you have a fear of God in your life, it's the foundation of your life, it's contagious. When you fear God and other people know that you fear God, they'll they'll start being rest- they'll restrain some of the things they would normally do in an ungodly environment. Have you ever noticed that? People that they know you fear God, they'll come around you and say, well, we don't talk that. And their buddies said, don't say that around him. We don't talk like that around him. Can't do that at his house. Why? Because the fear of God's contagious. It's a powerful thing. In fact, the Bible says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 9, verse number 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Every one of us have a worldview. Every one of us have a worldview. What do you mean, Pastor? A worldview. A worldview is the lens through which you filter life. Your worldview is the lens through which you filter life. Amanda and I have been around the world, preach the gospel around the world, and we notice in other countries, in other nations, their culture, people see life totally different than we see life in America. We have a worldview here that other people don't, but our worldview is the lens through which we view life, and if we don't have a fear of God as our foundation, a respect for God, uh, making giving him glory and honor for who he is, then our worldview will get very jaded and tilted the, the wrong direction without a healthy fear of God. there's a difference between Uh, wisdom and uh, being smart. A lot of people are smart, but they're not wise. And our university over here has hundreds and hundreds of professors who are smart, but many of them do not have a fear of God, so they're not wise. The fear of God, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom. And the Bible says Cornelius had a fear of God. The second thing, and this is so important, fathers, if you're a father with children or a grandfather with grandchildren, it's so important. Angelic protection is provided for those who fear God. How many of you know we need angelic protection in this day in which we're living? Psalm 30, 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who what? Everybody say, fear him. The angel of the Lord does what? In camps. He surrounds. He surrounds. He don't just visit periodically. He dwells around those who fear him. I tell you, it, it's, it can be a scary thing to send your kids out in this world nowadays. It's a scary thing. But since I fear God... And since we, our family fears God and has a respect for God and honors God and gives Him the preeminence that he, he, he deserves, we know that when our children and our grandchildren leave the house, though we can't be with them every step of the day, the angels of God are surrounding those children. The Word of God says the angels of God encamp, they surround, they dwell with the people who fear God. And then finally, the third thing about fearing God is this: The Bible says uh, that uh, uh, embracing a fear of God gives access to God's presence in your life. Here's what happens to us Here's what happens: We live like we want to all week long, and then we get our all year long, and then we get in a mess. We get in a mess. We act like we don't fear God. In our words, we don't fear God in our actions. We don't give Him much thought. We're doing our own thing. And then we get in a mess. Something happens. We lose our job. Sickness attacks our body. Our kids get involved with something that they shouldn't have gotten involved with. Drama invades our life. And then we start crying out for God. And if He don't respond in the manner in which we want Him to, in the time in which we want Him to, we get all discouraged and say, Where is God? Well, I'm going to tell you why He wasn't around you when you needed Him. Is because you didn't fear Him. You didn't fear Him. It wasn't a foundation in your life. Listen to what He says in Leviticus chapter 10. And Moses said to Aaron, now that's important to understand that. Moses said to Aaron, who was, what, what do you mean Moses said to Aaron? The Bible says that the children of Israel knew the ways of God, or the acts of God. Moses knew the ways of God. The children of Israel knew the acts of God. Moses knew the ways of God. The Bible says that Moses saw God face to face. Remember that story where Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. God says, okay, I'm going to show you my glory. And he put him in the cleft of the rock and put his hand over him. God says, you can't see me, my front parts. If you do, you'll die. But I'll let you see my back parts as I go by. I mean, Moses and God were pretty tight. And this is what the Bible says. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord said to me. What did he say, Moses? By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. See, if we want to embrace the presence of God in our life, we must have a foundation of the fear of God in our life. We can't be flippant about this God thing and expect him to show up at the snap of our finger. It says there, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. They must have a fear of me, and not a scared, not a being afraid, but a respect for, an honor for, to give him preeminence in first place in your life. And when we do that, then His presence, we have access to His presence. And then I shared this with you. I shared this little saying with you. The Holy Spirit goes where He is celebrated, not tolerated. The Holy Spirit goes where He's celebrated, not tolerated. If you want the Holy Spirit to manifest His glory for you and in you, then celebrate Him. Don't just put up with Him. Don't just give Him a moment of your time in passing make him the preeminent figure of your life that means to be God fearing you know there's some things I do because I fear God I I tithe I give 10% or more of my income every time I get paid I give 10% or more of my why why you do that's the law no I fear God I fear God The Bible says, will a man rob God? How have we robbed you? You rob me in tithes and offerings, the Bible says. Listen, I'd rather rob my grandmother than rob God. That's right, I'd rather rob my... Why? Because I fear God. I fear God. I want to give Him preeminence in my life. I want to give Him the glory and the honor He is due. I wouldn't even have the money at all if it wasn't for God. I dare not take what belongs to God. I wouldn't even have a job if it wasn't for God. I wouldn't even have the clothes on my back if it wasn't for God. I wouldn't have the strength to go to work every day if it wasn't for God. See, I reverence him too much to steal what belongs to him. Just do. So, Cornelius was devout, and Cornelius feared God. And then notice, and this is where we'll land for the next ten minutes, and then we'll go home. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, New Living Testament. In Caesarea there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his house. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Listen to the Passion Translation. At that time, there was a Roman military officer, Cornelius, who was in charge of 100 men stationed in Caesarea. He was the captain of the Italian regiment, a devout man of extraordinary character who worshipped God and prayed regularly, together with all of his family. He had a heart for the poor and gave generously to help them. Now, the modern translation, like the Passion, the NIV... New International Version, the New Living Translation, the NLT. The modern translation, which tries to put God's uh, the Holy Bible into our vernacular, uses the word generous. But the word generous is not a Greek word in the New Testament. In fact, the word in the original Greek is not the word generous at all. That's just what we use, because that's the language we use. The word is the word many. Many in the Greek. In other words, what it's saying is that Cornelius had a heart for people who were less fortunate, who were poor, and he gave many money to them. And the word many there means more than normal. He didn't just throw them a coin at Christmas. He had a history and pattern of giving much money that he had to the poor. Now, here's, here's, a, here's one that's interesting. Look at the New American Standard Bible. It's the New NASB, the New American Standard. It says Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. Now they used the word many and gave many alms. Now notice this to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now, that's an interesting way to put it. It says that he gave many, many monies. He was generous to the Jewish people. Well, what's the big deal about that? Remember, he's a Roman Gentile. Roman Gentiles were anti-Semitic. They hated the Jews. They hated the Jews as much as Hitler hated the Jews. They tried to eradicate them off the face of the earth. The Jews were dogs to them. They were nuisances. They they worshipped Caesar and were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. The last thing they were going to ever do was worship one god named Jehovah. And yet the Bible says that this Roman captain army officer had such a spirit of generosity that he gave to people that his own people thought were dogs. See, here's what I've learned about the spirit of generosity. A spirit of generosity is not bound by race or political ideology. Do you hear me? A spirit of generosity is not bound by race or political ideology. Now, I, I want to share something with you. It's not political. I want, to, I want to keep you from getting political. But we need to be careful how we talk about and treat people who are not like us. And it doesn't make any difference how you feel about whether they should be here or not or getting in the country. I'm not going, I'm not going there. That's, everybody's got their opinion, and that's fine, and and that's wonderful. But whatever you are on that, you need to understand if you come in contact with them, you need to be careful how you treat them. Because the spirit of generosity doesn't matter what the race is or the political ideology. And we men struggle with that. We'll be generous toward our family and people that look like us and agree with us, but people who don't agree with us and who don't look like us, we're going to keep our stuff to ourselves. Thank you. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Notice what it says. Verse 3. Go at verse 3 and verse 4. One afternoon about 3 o'clock he had a vision which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said, Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God. As an offering. Look what the New King James says. The New King James says it this way. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in the vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius! And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. The angel said to this man who wasn't even a Christian at this time, He didn't even know the Lord. God sent an angel to him and said, Cornelius, your prayers, and you don't even know who you're praying to, but your prayers and your giving to the poor has come up for a memorial before God. It's come up for a memorial before God. The word memorial, the word memorial means that which keeps alive the memory of someone or something. It comes from the root word mindful. You know what he's saying? He's saying your prayers and your giving to the poor keeps the Lord mindful of you. Your prayers and giving to the poor keeps the Lord mindful of you. Uh, Did you know every prayer you've prayed, if it hasn't been answered yet, and if it was a prayer of faith, It's in heaven right now. It's in the throne of God. So don't stop believing. Just because it hadn't been answered, don't give up. Because if you prayed it in faith, it's still reverberating around the throne room of heaven. You say, prove that to me, all right? Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5 real quick. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Let me quickly set this up for you. Um, John is writing this. Uh, he's, he, he's writing, he's seeing the, uh, the future. He's had a vision of God in heaven and all of a sudden he's caught up in this scene uh, where God is getting ready to reveal to him the future, the things that are going to take place on planet earth and uh, nobody knows what's going to happen so this is news to John this stuff hadn't been they didn't have a Bible that wrote this out where we can read it today this is all unfolding in real live action time right in front of John he's caught up into heaven he sees the throne room of God and it says that he saw in the right hand of him who sat on a throne a scroll with writing on both sides and seals with seven seals in that scroll was the events that were getting ready to unfold in the years to come about what's happening on earth and what's happening to mankind and about the eventual demise of Satan. All of that's in the scroll but none of it will take place unless the scrolls are opened. It'll all be held in in continual stagnation unless the scrolls will, will open. And, and the Bible says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? In other words, this stuff is never going to take place. Satan will never be defeated. Mankind will never be set free. God's kingdom will never be set up on earth. Unless somebody is able to open this scroll and set these things into motion. He says, and nobody can open it. But no one in heaven, verse 3, or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Look at verse 4. John says, I wept and I wept. Why was he weeping? Why was John weeping? He was weeping because mankind was forever going to be doomed to be under the thumb of Satan unless somebody opened the scroll and set the captives free by the hierarchy, and the reigning of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But nobody could open the scroll. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Let me ask you, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Nobody can open the scrolls. History will never, uh, the future will never unfold unless somebody opens the scrolls. Nobody can open it. Nobody could was found in on earth. Nobody was found underneath the earth to open the scrolls. John is weeping. God will never reign supreme. Satan will never be defeated. Nobody can open the scrolls. And all of a sudden, one of the elders said, Stop weeping. There is one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He can open the scroll. And then the Bible says in verse 6: Then I saw a lamb. Isn't that amazing? The, the elder said, he's a lion, but when John looked, it was a lamb. Yeah. You say, what does that mean, pastor? It means this, to God's enemies, he's the lion. Yeah. He's the king of the jungle. He has no equal. But to mankind, he's the lamb, the sacrifice. Yeah. Amanda okay. and I went to Africa to preach several years ago, and we went to the Serengeti for migration. I mean, it was absolutely wonderful. Every line, it was just like the movie The Lion King. Those animals were all everywhere. And we, one day, we were out there in the middle of the Serengeti, and they came on the microphone, and our Jeep driver said they found the lion. So all of it, we go, we, we head across the desert, and there, we when we get there, there's five or six or seven Jeeps in a semicircle and we pull up beside them and they're no further than me from Jason Dow there is a lion sitting there on a rock looking at us yawning (laughs) now we had been all over that desert and we would get within 50 yards of an elephant who was big enough to step on the jeep and destroy us and we would get within 50 yards and the elephants would run away We've got within here to there to that lion. And he looked at us and yawned. Had that rascal surrounded. And he never moved. Why? Because he knows no fear. He's the king of the jungle. And the elder said, when it comes to the enemy of God and the enemies of God, the lion knows no fear. And let me tell you something, when it comes to the enemies, the spiritual enemies that come against you, if you'll stand up and rise up in who you are in Christ Jesus, they'll surrender to you as well. Because we represent the lion of the tribe of Judah. We represent the king of the eternal jungle. His name is Jesus Christ. And when John turned to look, instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb who is the sacrificial lamb for humanity. And notice what it says. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse number 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of God's people. See, every prayer you've prayed that's not yet been answered, if you prayed it in faith, it's as incense swirling around the throne room of God. It it's constantly reminds God of your presence and your requests. So don't you give up praying. And that's exactly what the angel said to Cornelius. Your prayers... And your giving to God, giving to the poor, has come up as a memorial. It keeps God mindful of you all the time. Your prayers and your giving to the poor keeps God mindful of you at all time. People have said to me over the years, why do you give so much to the less for? Why do you give to the doors of hope why do you give to stepping stones why do you give to Amelia's Closet? why do you give the special clear why do you give the branches why do you why do you give the journey home why why do y'all do that why do y'all do so much let me tell you why we do it look at proverbs chapter 19 verse 70 proverbs chapter 19 verse 70 he who has pity on the poor lends to the lord and he will pay back what he has given over the years, I've had people say, why are you helping the poor so much? They'll never come to the church, and they can't pay you back. Well, of course they can't pay you back. They're poor. Duh. I'm not looking for them to pay me back. The Bible doesn't say he who has pity on the poor lends to the poor, and the poor are paying him back. The Bible says he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will pay him back. I'd much rather give to the poor than invest with, uh, what's that guy's name? Warren Buffett. I'd much rather give to the poor than invest with Warren Buffett. I, I had some Warren Buffett stock, lost money. Every time I've planted seed with people who are less fortunate than I am, God always blesses me abundantly. You're giving to the poor and your prayers... Have come up and makes God mindful of you. Now, see, men have a hard time with this generosity. Men struggle with generosity. Women normally are more generous than men. I know growing up in my house, if I needed money, especially when I got to be a teenager, if I needed gas for my car, I didn't go to daddy. I went to mama. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I went to Mama. I'd go to. I went to Daddy one time. I need gas. Why you need gas? Well, I need to go pick up Amanda. No, you don't need. You don't need to go out on a date anyway. You stay here. You know why men struggle with generosity because we got this caveman thing. Me man. Me man. Me protect cave. Me go out, kill animal, drive, drive, drag animal back, we eat animal, and then I stand at entrance of cave, make sure nobody else get my animal. Uh-huh. Me man, me protector, me provider, you got need in your family, you get your man to go protect. Uh-huh. Men struggle with generosity, Amen. whereas a woman will see a child in need, whether it's her child or, in, or somebody else's child, and she'll want to help that child. Amen. Amen. It's just the difference in our makeup. And the Bible says that Cornelius was a godly man mm-hmm. because he gave many monies to the poor. Yeah. And because he did, it caused God to be ever mindful of him. Well, why give to the poor? Why does that make God mindful? Have you read, read this verse? Matthew chapter 25. Have you ever read this? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right hands and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger." and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Notice what it says. The people didn't even know when they had blessed God. But when they blessed God when they give to those who were poor and less fortunate. And because they did, it caused God to be ever mindful of them. Even when they forgot doing it, God never forgot it. Even when they forgot doing it, God never forgot it. Because it came up as a memorial before God my dad died in november uh and then about uh, f- 5 months later the the headstone came for his marker for his grave my mom called and said just want you to know your dad's headstone marker's in and uh and you know how this works you maybe at the birthday or holidays you'll go back to the cemetery and and you'll visit the cemetery of your loved one who's died and And you see that marker. That marker is nothing more than a memorial. You'll stand there and look at that marker, read their name, read the dates. And you'll remember. You'll remember them. You'll remember good times. You'll remember how much you miss them. Well, The Bible says that our prayers and our giving to the poor comes up to God as a memorial. And every time we do that, we pray and we give to the poor, God remembers us. It's a memorial. It's a memorial. Cornelius was a godly man. He was devout. He was reverent. He had boundaries in his life. He was a God-fearing man. He gave God preeminence. He respected God. And he was a generous man. He was a giver. Not just to his family. Not to his friends. But to the poor. And because he was a man of that kind of character, the Bible says that God, he got the attention of God. And even though he wasn't a Jew, and even though he wasn't a Christian, he was an enemy to God's people. God had compassion on him. And visited him now if God will do that for somebody that's not in his family how much more will he come and minister to us if we'll do the same things and we're his children Cornelius acted like a child of God when he wasn't and he got the benefits of childhood of being in the family how much more now if we'll act like who we really are the children of God And men of God, how much more will we not be blessed by God? Stand with me.